Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. Happy Thanksgiving to my U.S. listeners. Happy regular Thursday to everyone else. It is the last Thursday of the month, so that means this month in birding, and I've got a great panel lined up for you. But before all that, a couple updates about the ABA's Bird of the Year reveal party in Philadelphia on December 19th of this year. The event itself is at Triple Bottom Brewing, and we have arranged discounted rates for attendees at the nearby Best Western Philadelphia Convention Center. It is a short walk from the venue. Also, we'll have live music from Matthew Halley. You might remember him as a former American Birding Podcast guest. He came on to talk about the Audubon hoax story, The Bird of Washington, a fascinating story, a great guest. But in addition to all of that, he is a musician has been performing for decades. Uh, one day I'll do a deep dive into the birding slash musician intersection. It's more extensive than you might imagine. But anyway, he'll be performing. You can chat with him about Audubon if you like. The man has opinions. We'll also be there announcing the 2022 ABA Bird of the Year. You can be there too. You can get information at aba.org slash bird of the year. To the show, our panel, Stephanie Bilkey, Martha Harbison, Prabita Saha, a Galbatross Quorum. We'll talk condor virgin births, shrinking Amazon birds, and why the Kill Bill Tanager really should have been the Bruce Lee Tanager. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of November 2021. No first records to report this week, though the Blue Mockingbird in New Mexico has continued into the period that I cover in this report. I do, however, want to continue to focus on New Mexico because it was a pretty wild week for that state. In addition to the mockingbird, an ancient merlet, a Pacific seabird, was found in Placitas and taken to a rehabber where it unfortunately did not survive. But even so, a remarkable record in the state's second, so far as I can tell. But that wasn't all. Birders at the mockingbird location late in the day couple days ago, heard and recorded New Mexico's second record of Eastern Screech Owl, suggesting that the Patagonia picnic table effect is for real, or at least it should be called the Rattlesnake Springs picnic table effect. I don't know if there's a picnic table there. I'll bet there is. Those things are everywhere. Those are the highlights in the rare bird world this week, oddly centered on New Mexico this time. But if you want the entire roundup, check out the rare bird alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba, or get those rarities as soon as they happen you can join the ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. The last Thursday of the month means it's time for This Month in Birding, a very special This Month in Birding for a couple of reasons. First, it is Thanksgiving in the United States when this episode releases, uh, which is the birdiest of our national holidays. So that is something. Uh, and second, it's a special all Galbatross panel of This Month in Birding featuring a whole 60% of the Galbatrosses uh, which is good enough to pass in my book. So uh, we will eventually have ticked all of the Galbatrosses on our collective life list, uh, and this gets us that much closer. So I will introduce them in alphabetical order. 
She is a senior manager of conservation science at Audubon Great Lakes, and she is in Chicago. It's Stephanie Bilkey. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Nate. Uh, they are the voice of outraged integrity at the National Audubon Society, <laughs> which is frankly a voice we could use more of just generally. Uh, it's Martha Harbison. Welcome, Martha. Hi, uh, thanks for having me, Nate. <laughs> and uh, a science writer at Popular Science by Day and a birder uh, also by day, sometimes the same day. Uh, it is our friend Perbita Saha. Welcome back, Perbita. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're all here. Uh, I want to start not with a, a birding news item, but sort of a general prompt. Uh, last month was the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival uh, back in person after a year away for COVID-19 related reasons. It was probably the biggest bird event so far, but certainly not the only one. It's very exciting to have all these things back on our schedule again. Uh, I know many of us have missed them. Uh, but the one thing that I noted for the event and others is that the online component was uh, completely absent this year after really pushing that last time. I've seen a number of bird clubs continuing online birding programs. Do you think that there's a, a place for both online and in-person events as we sort of head into, uh, it's probably too early to say the post-pandemic reality, but certainly the pandemic endgame? Uh, and do you have a preference? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a little hard to uh, bird together virtually, of course. I know people... Yeah came up with pretty inventive ways, you know, using Instagram Live. And there were some real benefits, uh, especially for accessibility within the birding community. Um, sure. You know, not everyone can hit the trails in the same way. But I personally have, of course, missed in-person birding. I'm excited for the Christmas bird count to be mm -hmm. uh, a little more, you know, collaborative this year. But the one thing I've liked about this newfound virtual birding community Last year, uh, when we really couldn't see anyone, Martha and a couple of friends and I, we were doing these uh, bird jeopardies as just a way mm -hmm. to you know, keep the team together, uh, despite uh, the fact that we were all scattered. And uh, I've seen this more even as people like emerge from solitude, like it's it's been used as a tool for fundraising, whether it be for conservation or for birding outreach. Like there's this event coming up um, by the anti-racist avid birders uh, organization um, and they're fundraising uh, with like this bird game night on December 12th um, for one of their organizers. So I think it, even if, even without the barrier of the pandemic, like this could be just a new way to expand the limits of the birding community and all that we do and contribute to, which is exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. One other thing that I've noticed and um, I've had people tell me, um, I did, a, a, I've done a number of online events, whether it's bird ID classes. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was I did an intro to uh, leading bird trips. Uh, oh, cool. Because, uh, you know, I would love for, it, I would just love for more people to feel comfortable about taking other people out uh, birding. Um, totally. And at least a couple of people, I did it basically, it started as an online, like some pedagogy. And then we, because it was only in New York City, I we all met up in a in a park later. And then I was like, okay, and this is now how you move people through space. This is how you nice. see birds. This is how you misidentify a bird as a leader. And then like, you know, <laughs> yeah, and then gracefully kind of take way into correct. it. Yeah, yeah I was like, oh yeah. yeah, that is actually a... <laughs> Um, but anyway, a couple of them came up to me afterwards. So they were brand new birders and like, I would have not felt comfortable just walking yeah. oh, into this really cool. space. So it's like the introduction first 
really like was able to open up the uh, the possibility to doing this activity to people that probably would not have done it before. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I would love to hear more from like bird guides, how they've made the bridge from those virtual classes to in-person instruction again. Yeah, that's a the really interesting avenue. And, and no, I, I, and I love that because, you know, guiding bird trips is one of those things that feels kind of overwhelming, uh, but actually is is easier than people think. And you're absolutely right, Martha. We need we need more bird people comfortable doing that. Uh, more advocates for birding more. Uh, I, I don't know what you would call them. They're kind of, uh, you know, evangelists for the birding community in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I was reminded of how uh, last year we were still thinking that we might, the Galvatrosses might all meet in person to mm. bird together because we originally did a world series of birding um, in 2019. Right. And the then Galvatross origin story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then in uh, 2020, uh, we couldn't meet up anyway because we're all like in different parts of the country, um, some closer than others, but we all were texting on our official Galbatross female bird day weekend. So it was really fun to be able to virtually bird with other people that we, you know, couldn't be, or it's harder for us to be together in person either way, because we live apart, but I, I hope we can make a reunion, uh, someday soon. Yeah. Yeah. Sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, I really hope that the online stuff doesn't completely disappear. It is such a great way to get people who are maybe uncomfortable going to a bird club meeting on a Tuesday night for whatever reason, maybe they are busy, they have kids, they have whatever, but being able to, you know, log onto Facebook or whatever social media platform you prefer and, and watch the presentation and, and feel like you're part of the community. Um, it's such a such an important thing, and I, I really hope that that doesn't completely go away when we're all rushing back <laughs> to to be in person again. As as wonderful as that does feel, I totally agree. One thing I wanted to this may be a digression, so feel free to edit <laughs> Please, it out. Love digressions, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, one thing that I would love to go back to something I was talking about, and then we sort of focused on a little bit. I would love for the birding community, the people, for those of us that lead trips, be thinking about. Um, uh, the leadership pipeline more because I think a yeah. lot of people get very comfortable leading trips. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to lead that trip and I'm going to lead that trip and I'm going to lead that trip. But, uh, but aren't thinking about like, well, how can I make other people feel comfortable doing that? Um, yeah. So it's like passing the baton. Um, and I think that's something that not a lot of people do very mindfully. Um, I had to think very yes, hard for myself true. about what was I nervous about? Um, Mm -hmm. how did I learn how to do this? Because I'm just kind of a natural, I'm naturally just kind of an outgoing person. So just Mm -hmm. like put me in front of a group. I'm like, that's great. But there, it shouldn't just be people like me doing that people that are a little bit more shy. How do you build them up so that they feel comfortable doing that as well? It's, I think that, you know, it's, it's something I'm going to be thinking about a lot over the winter. Like what can I take into the spring and spring migration to diversify and broaden the number of of bird trip leaders in, I mean, in my area for sure, but I mean, just thinking around the country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really productive, uh, a productive use of, of, of folks' energy um, when they're not leading trips. Martha, do you want to talk about uh, condor virgin births? <laughs> the condor, condor messiah? The, the, <laughs> Absolutely. Muadib. Muadib. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, he was not technically a virgin birth. That's, but... that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I spent a lot. I'm going to say like you made me shed years uh, when you threw this topic at me because it was <laughs> going right back to university where I was cramming the night before. Like I have to learn so much about yeah. the topic before yeah. I can talk about it or put it on a test. Um, but anyway, yeah. So. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, um, although I think this story has spread pretty far now, um, yeah, uh, researchers that were looking at doing a bunch of genomic analysis on uh, the California Condor um, uh, Rehabilitation Program noticed something really weird with two of their birds. Um, and it's like, what's going on? And it turns out two of the birds that were born of the of the captive um, uh, rearing program uh, down in San Diego uh, were actually parthenogenesis. It's like parthenotes is what they're called. It's parthenogenesis where uh, a a female uh, essentially lays an egg and there's no male involved and the the embryo develops into usually um, a full-fledged individual, which is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> it happens a lot in sharks. That's where mm-hmm. like people first noticed it was in like sharks and aquariums and also like I have more sharks That's than I That's the story I've always heard in Yeah, and there's a few classes. lizards that do it too. Yeah, lizards. But... Apparently zebra finches and chickens do it as well, um especially huh. when you only have female um populations, but most of them don't huh. actually hatch. So that was so, so parthenogenesis is not like a, an unusual thing, but it's relatively rare, um, and especially in birds. So to have two chicks like just show up and both of them hatched successfully, one of them lived to be almost eight years old, the other lived to be three years old. Um, oh, wow. What is a do we know what a condor's typical lifespan is? Probably yeah, like around 10. 60, no, 60 years. And they oh. did reach. Oh my yes. god! <laughs> yeah, so, so. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. condors are condors are are very long lived. One of these birds was actually released back into the wild um, and huh. died died from malnourishment, and they think it was because it couldn't integrate with the other the other condors Weird. that had already been released. The second one uh, lived its whole life in captivity because it was uh, underweight, and I guess they didn't feel like they huh. could act they could actually release it. Uh, but I'm speculating, so don't quote me on that. Uh, but anyway, so they basically did this genomic analysis and they're like, huh, look at that. We've got two male birds here uh, that don't have dads. Um, and uh, they were pretty surprised with that result. Um, I personally was kind of I was just kind of curious, like, well, how does that happen? And, you know, parthenogenesis as a process is actually pretty fascinating. Um the eggs are usually haploid. They don't have enough DNA to actually make uh, a full individual. And so yeah. there are. The processes do you have um do, does the genome just double by itself and then it's like it's it's uh you know it sort of forms from one ovum that's one theory another theory is that two ova actually fused uh to huh. become a uh yeah make it deployed yeah so yeah. it was huh. it, it was rad um the researchers as far as i know they because there's only two of them it's very hard to make conc- draw conclusions on whether or not Parthenotes are actually um, uh, fit. You know, these two, neither of them reproduced and they yeah. both died very young. Um, so it's like, is this typical? Um, right. Considering that most of them die before they hatch, like maybe this is actually, you know, that there is something that makes them less fit to survive than uh, condors that are produced the usual mm. way. 
what I thought was really interesting about this in particular was that, like, would we notice that this sort of thing was happening if it wasn't a critically endangered species that were like paying attention to every single individual that's out there? Right. Um, like, how how frequently does this happen among wild birds, common species that we don't even notice? Like, well, you wouldn't know if it happened to a robin in your yard or even like a red-tailed hawk that's hanging around. Like, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it. But the the only reason we know that this happened is because it's condors and every single individual is so you know precious so deeply interesting to conservationists and, and researchers yeah and the fact that it took so i mean condors have been studied and in this captive yeah, breeding program for what 40 thing. years now yeah, right. and both of these birds i mean they died years ago so this was like essentially somebody was like i'm just oh, going to really? look at all the i'm just going to look at all the genetic material from every bird that we've that we that's ever come through this program and then yeah. it was just like huh all right, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. there, there's so much captive breeding among raptors. I wonder if this will push others to look mm. at those, you know, at that DNA information and kind of backtrack and see if it occurs in other raptor species. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in zoos too. They right. they do a lot of cap. I mean, that's the only kind of <laughs> breeding that's going on would be captive breeding. And I'm sure they have a lot of data to look through. I wonder if uh, like falconers and other people who keep birds of prey recreationally have noticed anything like this happening. I I, I, I don't know a ton about falconry for starters. Maybe people who are listening to this will will email me and tell me what I'm what I'm getting wrong. Uh, but I don't know how frequently falconers breed birds into captivity. My my sense is that not not terribly often. But um, yeah, I, I wonder if there's any evidence of this sort of thing happening. And but I guess you know most falconers don't have access to the sort of genetic tools needed to determine this sort of thing anyway. So no, maybe, maybe perhaps not. Let me just fire up the PCR machine. That's right. My little, little <laughs> closet PCR machine. That's right. Well, are, are condors easy enough to sex in the wild? Actually, is there a big, um, is there size dimorphism between females and males? Well, that's a good question. I, and I, I, I guess I would assume so because the raptors and it's so, prevalent among raptors but i don't know that i don't know that turkey vultures do that huh i you know i don't know not that i know of that's yeah. that's always the galvatross question but can yeah. we sex it <laughs> <laughs> oh man totally relevant yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing i will say is that because it happens so that part this parthenogenesis when it does it, it so rarely leads to a viable individual yeah, right. um, that yeah, it could be happening all the time. Yeah. But it's like you would have to take every egg that didn't hatch and do yeah. an analysis on it. So um, it's like it could be happening all the time, but it just doesn't actually lead to a bird that we can see. That's right. Right. Yeah. I, I would guess more often in birds that are isolated or, you know, in, endangered or rare where they're not finding a mate, because as yeah, long as they're they're mating, they're probably... Yeah, so maybe the house finches in my yard are less likely to do it because there are so many dang house finches around my neighborhood. I, I feel like there could be some kind of clone uprising if, if we were getting, <laughs> you know, all birds were getting in on this. It's like Planet of the Apes. But That's right, but with Blue Jays. <laughs> also, the other thing that I was thinking about is I feel like there was a lot of Yes, this is great news because we don't have a lot of condors. If we can have a lot more condors uh, cloning themselves, 
then maybe we can make more clo- uh, condors, clone, clone doors. Clone doors. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it's it's not great for a small population to be introducing like less genetic ner- that's variability. A good, yeah, that's another good point. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it kind of files into that sort of cool, but we don't really know what it means sort of topic. I, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked for condors or maybe not. I, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. If I may interject a Galbatross moment, I've just looked up in Birds of the World, and the sexes are similar, but males are slightly larger. Oh, so, wow. Oh, so it's the opposite of other huh. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. another, another fun fact, Martha, you said both the, the offspring were male. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Which is really so, interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. You're going to talk about Oh, yeah. Because, you're going to talk uh, about the chromosomal system. I was right, just going to yeah. ask. Yeah. yeah so... Um, <laughs> Birds have the opposite uh, chromosome uh, pattern than than uh, humans do, or I would guess most mammals do for determining the the sex of the offspring. So it's uh, they use Z and W, I believe, mm-hmm. and females are ZW and males are ZZ. So they have the same. The males have two of the same chromosomes, and females have two different chromosomes. So that's why a female could have. Uh, a male offspring without uh, oh. the the father's genetic input. Oh, that, is the, that the case with like lizards and sharks too? A lot of yes, a lot of them use oh, the cool. same. Where the oh, it's know. where you know with 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 mammals, uh, the females are homos. It's called homozygous to have yeah. two of the same, um, and then males are heterozygous. Um, but with sharks, a lot of reptiles, and with birds, it's with the birds opposite. apparently. Yeah, yeah. It, well, they I guess that's where they come from. I mean, that's that's the lineage. Sort of. Maybe maybe that makes them perfectly set up to have parthenogenesis because female doesn't need uh, a male to make either me- male or female offspring. Yeah. Good science huh. lesson. Um, recently, there was a study that came out uh, with, uh, I believe it was Louisiana State University, uh, basically, there's a lot of uh, past data going back to the 80s of uh, a number of different species in the Amazon where they were able to collect weight information on live uh, birds. And they found that uh, over time, birds were decreasing in weight. And it was to the point of about 2% uh, smaller per decade. And they've found that that's likely a result of uh, climate change and that birds are expected to keep getting smaller with the warmer temperatures. But another interesting um, part of that was that they found that the effect was stronger in birds that were in the canopy or higher in the canopy hmm. uh, versus on the ground. So the the birds that were exposed to more more sunlight were uh, ha- having an increased effect because of the warmer temperatures. Yeah, it's what is the uh, what is the the law um, the the rule Berg- Berg- Bergman's? Bergman's rule that yeah. says that things that are in warmer temperatures, warmer climates, are smaller than things that are at uh, colder temperatures because of uh, you know they retain larger things retain heat better. So it makes sense that birds would get smaller in a in a warming climate. Although you did find a, an example of a uh, of a counterintuitive group of bird and swallows, is that correct? Yes, yeah, and th- this is probably just one of many examples of yeah. like there are for exceptions every, for every to rule the. An exception, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of exceptions to Bergman's rule, and yeah, one one uh, finding was by a group 
that's doing um, a project called the the Cliff Swallow Project. And um, they actually found pretty much the opposite effect. So with the Amazon study, they found birds were getting smaller and they were their wings were actually getting longer. And um, the Cliff Swallow Project found that during the same time period since the 80s, that birds were actually increasing in skeletal size. So they were getting larger and um, their wings were actually getting shorter. But uh, the, the size change, they actually do attribute to climate change, but they're looking at um, so this study mostly took place in uh, Nebraska, and they found that uh, colder cold snaps in the spring uh, were related to this size mm-hmm. increase. So they were having colder springs led to larger birds. So I guess it may still be <laughs> a result of the, the Bergman's rule there, but they actually found the wing length change was likely due to many of these birds uh, using bridges that go over highways and being in urban environments where they have to avoid cars. And uh, so their shorter wings gave them the ability to avoid traffic better. Yeah. That's, I feel like I've heard that among a few, maybe barn swallows as well, specifically Mm, on the wing shape um, and because of their proximity to traffic, not, not with the body size and climate change. Yeah. I I don't know about you, uh, but I find myself sort of torn between uh, anxiety, climate change related anxiety, and also just sort of a little bit fascinated by all the various ways that organisms are adapting and sometimes in really bizarre and, and quick ways to to rising temperatures. It is a uh, it is an odd uh, place to be. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, I, I don't know if we wanted to talk about, you know, COP and, uh, you know, obviously climate change is on the, on the mind of a, of a lot of birders. I don't know if we there's uh, any room to talk about, um, you know, climate mindfulness with regards to the, the birding community. I mean, there are certain ways that, that, you know, birders being generally speaking sort of environmentally minded uh, for the most part, I, I do think Super that there is a, a desire <laughs> yeah, for, for the most part with a few exceptions. Um, uh, you know, there's at least a desire to be sort of mindful of that sort of thing when we're practicing our hobby. And it's certainly a, a point of pride that our hobby, for the most part, is pretty friendly thing. I don't know if you guys have any any thoughts about that. I think with all like looking at the promises and pledges that actually came out of COP26, um, mm-hmm. you know, we've been writing a few stories about that at Popular Science. Um it's politicians holding themselves accountable amongst each other, but then mm-hmm. where do we as the people fit in? So I think it's always worth it to continually, I mean, when you have room between the climate anxiety <laughs> and, um, you know, actually seeing how it, how the changes are impacting your life, it's always important to just question what are my practices that are most sapping on the environment? Like it, it, should be different for everyone, right? Um, mm-hmm. One of the go-tos for mitigating like personal climate intensive practices is like carbon offsets for um, plane rides. But I know I personally, even before the pandemic, I don't like I maybe fly like twice a year or mm-hmm. something. Um, so I don't see that as like a big, like a big move on my part. I mean, I don't think it would, it would be substantial and, mm-hmm. you know, furthering this fight. Um, but I do have a car and I live in the suburbs and I drive myself or my dog like around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's probably pretty unnecessary. So one thing that the pandemic taught me was, you know, to do a lot more hyper-local birding and keep it on foot. And I can't say I've completely stuck to that um, as, you know, more places have opened up, but I would like to find a better balance there that's friendlier yeah. for the planet. Or, you know, if I am going on a much further trip, maybe taking along some friends who have birded before, who haven't birded before, just so mm-hmm. there's like a little carpool situation going on. For sure. So yeah, that's definitely, especially with like chasing rarities and such, you know, some birders will go five, six, 12 hours <laughs> on a drive. Yeah. <laughs> and I think most people are good at, you know, finding their community and being like, who needs a ride with me? Right. Um, but you can always, you know, question doubly question whether it's worth it mm-hmm. no i hear you yeah i'm a i'm a big fan of hyper local birding i i moved recently i'm still in chicago but i'm much closer to the biggest birding hot spot oh you're in the you're city Montrose? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of close i'm about you know i i could walk there but it it's mostly a drive um mm-hmm. still but i i still bird mostly in my local park that's half a mile away instead of going out to Montrose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I just love going to a spot that, you know, will have birds, even if it's not like yeah. the bird that everybody is, is out going to see and just, you know, being out and hoping or just anything you find getting excited about what's there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think there's a lot of uh, satisfaction that can be found in um, birding a, a patch that no one birds, that no one else covers, and you're like the one person that is, <laughs> monitor, is monitoring the birds there and putting them into eBird, and then you get a nice little chart that shows where you've birded and everything you've seen. So, you know, thank you eBird for making local birding much more satisfying <laughs> as far as that's concerned. Um, but yeah, there are little things that we can do here and there, and whether or not that actually helps in the whole scheme of things, I, I do want to be held more responsible by the powers that be um i think that would be kind of a load off um to know that you know they're taking responsibility in that way uh but i think i think we we do what we can to what extent to what extent we can i mean we all have money we spend it uh yeah. one thing i've been thinking of is uh i've held a bank account at chase for like m- my whole adult life um and recently, uh, my local high school, their Sunrise Movement, they held a protest for Line 3. You know, we marched around town and then we ended up at the Chase Bank location that I go to, like, get my money. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm a huge hypocrite. Um, I mean, these these big banks, most big corporations have a huge stake in fossil fuels and mm-hmm. continue to perpetuate that. Um I probably will be trying to close my Chase bank accounts by the end of the year. And yeah, I'm just one person in like millions of customers. But um, if that became additive in any way, that would also have a huge effect. Uh, So that's not specific to birders. But, you know, again, we have we have skin in the game with um, with Mm -hmm. our with our beloved birds. So I agree with everything that uh, Stephanie and Perbita uh have have said one thing that i really s- stuck out to me not just with cop 26 um i didn't actually even pay attention to what most of the world leaders said so I know, like right but i really was interested to hear, hear indigenous voices mm-hmm. talking about um not just how climate change is going 
to affect is affecting them now or is going to affect them in the future because I think we all know that. Um, but really specifically looking at 30 by 30 and supporting efforts for um, indigenous stewardship of their own lands and mm-hmm. doing what we can since we have a you know a decently large platform and really talking about like how can we hold our own governments responsible or accountable I should say um, for supporting uh, the people that have been stewarding the land that we all live on for thousands of years because mm-hmm. they certainly did it without like causing a climate collapse um so (laughs) maybe we should be supporting some of those efforts a lot more too and i i was really happy to see some of those voices i didn't think that they were elevated enough in the mainstream media because it was Mm. the same same people yeah same people saying the same stuff and then breaking Mm -hmm. those promises immediately going to all alternative routes uh defining solutions um, with the people that are already doing work on the ground where they live. Yeah, well put, Martha. I think this one will be pretty short because um, the study is not conclusive in any way, but it was very interesting. Um, so it was led by uh, some ornithologists in Australia, which I feel like is just a hub of very cool bird research. And that Absolutely. might just be because yes. they're a hub of very cool birds. <laughs> um, but they just had a lot of great questions about, uh, I think it was largely triggered by this finding a few years ago that um, birds were not the first to have colors to their eggs. Uh, it actually, you know, is a artifact from the era of dinosaurs. So these uh, Australian ornithologists had a couple more questions. Um, They were wondering, um, you know, whether bird eggs were colored, like, since the dawn of birds, um, whether that trait had been lost over time and, like, regained. Uh, And specifically, they wanted to see if there was any connection to nest shapes or, like, the way that birds nest either on the ground or in trees or whatnot. Most of their... uh, analysis was on songbirds um, just because, you know, they show the greatest range in like egg shape, color, nesting, etc. They looked mostly at uh, museum specimens because, you know, egg collecting was like a huge um, hobby and uh, largely illegal one. Well, now it's largely illegal, maybe like 200, even 100 years ago. Basically, the way they traced back some of um, like the evolutionary behaviors, they found that it seemed like when birds started to make more cup-shaped or open nests, their their eggs got became more colorful over time. So like they started with primarily white or brown eggs, but then um, when they were like more in like domed nests, um, like kind of think of like an oven bird nest, I think. Mm-hmm. Once they gravitated to more cup-shaped ones, um, like a lot of ground-nesting sparrows do, they showed more of a range of color. This could be because of camouflage. Um, Obviously, if you have an open nest, uh, you are going to need to hide the eggs in some way so that a predator doesn't just come over and scarf them up. It could also be a benefit for thermoregulation. So like darker-colored eggs are going to retain more heat. And they also, you know, eggs that are more heavily pigmented are generally stronger and not going to like be crushed as easily. Hmm. So there are a few little like benefits here. And 
I mean, it's more of like a correlation at this point with the shift in how birds created their nests and what um, their eggs look like. But uh, they did see that like, you know, there was kind of like an oscillation, like songbirds had more colorful eggs, like in certain periods of um, avian history, and then they lost that and went back to more drab eggs. Hmm. So there was like this kind of swinging back and forth, which is really interesting. I know Stephanie does like nest searching for um, her uh, biological work, but I don't interact with eggs all that much, like wild bird eggs. Um, but it made me more curious about them for sure. Uh, one fun fact that I didn't realize was that at least um, these researchers said that all bird egg pigments are based off of brown and blue, which, yeah, like now come to think of it, okay, I guess I've never <laughs> seen like a highlighter yellow egg, but yeah. Shame. Also, how do cassowaries make like those jade? Yeah, pigments? I was just gonna mention. I was thinking about that. I was holding that that fact <laughs> ready to burst. Yeah, they have green eggs. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's a. I don't know if eggs have the same capability to have like structural pigments, like um, yeah, like bird yeah. feathers. But cool, cool little nifty study that I didn't really see. Um, you know, reported pretty widely, but we'll have the link in your in your write up. Yeah, I did not realize that uh, open cup shape nests came after dome nests. I would have thought it would have been the other way around. It's kind of a trend towards simplification rather than uh, more complicated nests, which I thought was cool. That must have to do a little with um, how like terrain changed, yeah, you know, through different so. climatic eras. Yeah, I imagine like in more busy habitats, like it's okay to have an open open nest. Yeah, I thought the the egg on the branch was the first nest. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like a fairy turn. <laughs> yeah, it's like here's, oh, here's yeah, a Y shaped branch that. that I can fit an egg on. That would have been it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they don't have colorful eggs. I don't. I no, don't think they're so. plain yeah. white. <laughs> yeah. One thing I'm curious about um, would be nest parasitism, and is yeah. something in robin's eggs? And I can't actually remember because I know yellow warblers um, actually can recognize when a mm-hmm. brown-headed cowbird lays an egg in their nest and then they actually just roof over the old clutch and then yeah. lay the eggs which is awesome yeah. so you can get like somebody found a six-tiered yellow warbler nest <laughs> like a skyscraper uh, yellow warbler yeah. nest yeah, Town home right. awesome. <laughs> um but yeah so i wonder if there's i have no idea what type of evolutionary pressure those would have in australia but you know in north america there's yeah. something equivalent happening yeah, there was a there was a chapter in um, uh, Jennifer Ackerman's recent book that came out last year about uh, egg parasitism and sort of the the arms war between cuckoos and um, perching birds in Australia, fairy fairy uh, fairy wrens in Australia, and how like they they're able to recognize cuckoo uh, eggs in there, but cuckoos are constantly trying to match the pattern of the fairy fairy wrens nest, and it's like this constant. Uh, evolutionary struggle back and forth through more complex eggs to simpler eggs and this back and forth. I thought that was really cool how that might have driven patterned eggs. Um, I don't know to the, what extent cowbirds in North America are able to do it, but I know cuckoos are pretty pretty crazy with their abilities. Something like the like the in the female birds cloaca, like they can put the pattern on like the the color. I forget the term I'm looking for. This, this is not very scientific at all, but they're able to kind of manipulate the pattern uh, when like the egg stamp. comes out, which is pretty good. I would say, yeah. like, send it out in a seal. I yeah. would say, send it out in a spiral. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, with nest parasites, there's always that one example they use in ornithology textbooks about there are certain species where the 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 nest predator offspring can actually like they, there's been some kind of evolutionary battles between um the the patterns of mm-hmm. the the inside of the throat that the parents oh, recognize yeah. the difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a little off base from the eggs, but same same phenomenon yeah 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 i mean there's a lot of i think there's a lot of stuff going on in eggs that we don't really pay a ton of attention to and then i know i don't i don't look for i mean when i notice a nest i'm like oh that's cool but i don't really pay a ton of attention to i don't go out looking for them or anything i know some people are really good yeah i i only did nest searching for one field season as a technician where i worked for a graduate student but Uh i i did notice we we studied cardinal nests and robin nests in Mm -hmm. urban neighborhoods and we saw tons of cowbird eggs, but only in the, in the cardinal nest. And then we hmm. never had, I never even saw a cowbird egg in a robin nest. They must be so efficient at getting rid of them because yeah, cool. they, they definitely don't hide their nests. Yeah. You know, right. They're out yeah. in the open on some way more robin nests than cardinal nests. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's time for the question of the month. Uh, one of the cooler bird news stories uh, that came out this month was the official recognition of the Inti tanager which is a, a new-to-science species, first discovered a decade or so ago. It takes a while for the gears of official, the officialness to, to, to work through. But it was uh, discovered in Peru, seen on and off for a few years around Manu, Manu, uh, and given the interim name Kill Bill Tanager uh, because of its bright yellow. It's bright yellow with a cool black eye line. It looks a, a bit like the uh, jumpsuit that Uma Thurman wore in the Kill Bill movie, which was popular when the bird was first, was first seen although it feels uh, a bit dated now. So it, it did get me thinking, uh, are there any other birds out there who deserve a pop culture name or reference or whatever? And I, and I will say, as an aside, I do think Inti Tanager is a much better name than Kill Bill Tanager. It refers, Inti is a, evidently a, an indigenous name for the sun, and it refers to the, uh, the bright yellow color of the bird, which is very cool. It's, it's a good name. Um, but Kill Bill Tanager is also kind of funny, too. But uh, are there any other uh, birds that deserve sort of a pop culture name? Or can you think of any sort of bird pop culture mashups? Most of my mashups that are just living inside my head are <laughs> to do with the four-letter codes that yeah. birds have. And now that I know about the Kill Bill Tanager, I'll probably think of that every time I see a killdeer, which <laughs> has the four-letter code kill. kill. So I'll be like, there's Wait, Kill Bill. It's- yeah. It is the most violent of the short <laughs> Wait, but how is that? What is the four-letter code? It's just K-I-L-L. kill. Because it's the first first four letters of oh, the name because it's only got one usually name. Usually they do. Okay, got it. Yeah. Sorry. Like Sora is Sora, which is so annoying. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Sora. Yeah. <laughs> I feel terrible not being able to answer this question because all of my jokes around birds are usually like crappy puns. You know, oh, or yeah. or situation based things. Those. So yeah, like every time we one of the there's a really great birding spot in in New York City um, called Greenwood Cemetery, and literally mm. every time that we see a, a robin there, we're just like <laughs> grave robin. <laughs> every time <laughs> it's been going on for years. And yeah, that's a joke that never gets old. It never because there's always old. new birders that need to hear it. Yeah, yeah I, I know that I have a few of those. 
Yeah, and um, actually, a bunch of our colleagues at Audubon, we've uh, decided to rename the black and white warbler the People's Warbler. Yeah, that's a Daiki James thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's anyway, the People's so I, Tree Keeper. Yeah, so yeah. The People's Tree Creeper. Uh, people's I'm, Tree I, Keeper. Um, but anyway, so those, I, so I can't actually answer that. But I will say, by the way, um, I really think that the Killable Tanager should have been called the Bruce Lee Tanager because oh, Bruce he did Lee, it first. That's Bruce Lee right. was the original yeah. yellow jumpsuit with the black stripes. So that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, it's a shame it wasn't found in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't really think of a good one either. Uh, I did. There was a movie I was watching. Maybe it was Dune. There was there was just one one bird call that kept playing. It was a killdeer. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It back to the right. killdeer. It was, it was a killdeer, dude. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure a killdeer wouldn't survive on a very unhospitable, super hot planet full of spice. Yeah, but undoubtedly. Um, one thing I always think of is um, so uh, birding by ear expert um, Tom Stevenson. One thing he taught me when I was first learning to bird by ear is um, making like visual images based on the call or song of a bird species um that can like serve as a memory hook for you um Mm. so one that i created in my head was a lightsaber for the northern cardinal and i linked it to darth maul because of like the black and red of the male northern cardinal there you go (laughs) so i would not be opposed to renaming especially if they get ever get split up into multiple species um, because there does seem to be a lot of distinction with some of the Western Northern Cardinals. Um, I would not be opposed to naming one Darth Maul Cardinal. Yeah. Or, or at least a, a Jedi Cardinal or Sith Cardinal. Sith Cardinal. <laughs> oh God, that would be, although the, at that point we might as well just, uh, what's the, is it Pyroloxia? No. No. Um, yeah, yeah. Fina yeah. that have the black. Yeah. yeah. Oh Yeah. That would be that is a Sith card. Yeah, yeah. Got a whole little Star Wars universe there. Yeah. Well, uh, your reference to Dune got me thinking of uh, of Spice Finch, which is the the pet trade the, name the for the fifth ne- ma- member of the Spice Girls or sixth member. <laughs> yes, Spice Finch. <laughs> is there a uh, is there a spice a bird with a spice in the name that could be like the melange something? Cinnamon teal. Oh yes, yeah, uh, and there is a, a Spice okay. Imperial pigeon. Uh, it could be the Melange Imperial Pigeon or the, I feel like there's a Dune crossover just waiting to happen with that, with the Imperial thing as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I might be thrown off because I don't know anything about Dune. <laughs> 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 oh, but they do the spice. Okay. I got it. I was like, oh, a spice is cinnamon, like the cinnamon teal. Oh. Is that where we're going? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, had a, I had a friend who used to call the black and chestnut eagle, like the the Darth Vader eagle which is actually pretty good because it does has a, like a cool crest that looks like the darth vader um uh helmet and uh it's all you know it's black and chestnut it's kind of a cool looking bird does it um, always feel sorry for itself too yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know i've never seen one so i couldn't say but um <laughs> there must be a bird out there that looks like danny devito Danny DeVito, like kind of a short, round bird, <laughs> yeah. an American Dipper, <laughs> or a, oh. or, or a uh, I don't know, or a Bushhead, or something like that. Something yeah. small and yeah. round. Didn't yeah. he play the penguin on one of the? In That's one of the true. Oh, that feels You're too right. easy. Oh yeah, he literally <laughs> looks like a macaroni penguin. <laughs> We're, it's getting towards the end of the week. I'm kind of tired. Right. 
That's right. Comes and slash. <laughs> take it. Yeah, Danny DeVito, anything. Like Emperor Danny DeVito, King Danny DeVito, Rock Hopper Danny DeVito, all of them. <laughs> Since we were talking about Cardinals, I wanted to make sure to uh, mention that my uh, one of my field coworkers in the back in the day, we and when Lady Gaga was popular, we ho- wrote a whole song called Noka Face for the Northern <laughs> Cardinal uh, in reference to Lady Gaga uh, poker face. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh my God, Stephanie! I just learned a thing about you. <laughs> Here we are bringing people, to, even people that knew each other before, bringing them together. No, 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 Noka Face. No, no, Noka Face. Oh, yeah, I sang it wrong. Uh, It's been a while. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, uh, Stephanie, Martha, and Perbita. Uh, Thank you for for joining for this month in birding. Um, Good luck next year, this in 2022, meeting together for for a full Galbatross's uh, reunion. I look if you do that, or even if you don't, we'll we'll be back in touch. We'll do like a Galbatross's female bird day episode. I feel like that would be a good crossover. Um, anyway, thank you so much. Uh, I'll have links to uh, all your social media whatnots on uh, in the show notes. Please check them out. They're all great people, uh, and as, exactly as delightful as they seem in this month of burning. So um, thank you, thank you to all three of you. Have a have a have a great have a great uh, month. Have a great yeah. Thanksgiving. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Enjoy the holidays. Thanks, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits, like our magazines. You get discounts to partners, opportunities to travel with us. You get to come to our ABA Bird of the Year reveal party next month. Actually, you don't have to be a member to do that. That's that's fine. You can get information at aba.org slash join. I do have some shout outs to make this week to Alexander and Jamie Rabb of Hastings on Hudson, New York, and Pierre Cotadal of Gatineau, Quebec, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who by virtue of their somewhat aggressive personality suggests that maybe double-crested cormorants should be called reservoir dog cormorants. Technical production is from John Lowry, who is currently referring to the small flock of aggressive Canada geese in his neighborhood as the hateful eight. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who both agree that the little bustard is probably the most inglorious of the bustards. You can find us on ABA.org, on Facebook, and Twitter as American Birding Association. I'm not like a huge Tarantino fan or anything, but I am 100% in favor of referring to the Eastern Siberian herring gull as the Vincent Vega gull, because as far as I'm concerned, the evidence suggesting that it should be split is nothing but gull fiction. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.